If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, we do need your direct support to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. And that is the power of the collective. So join us today as a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and recommended resources from every episode. I feel quite strongly now that to try and resolve the sorts of environmental problems that we're facing from from within the same ontological and epistemological frameworks that have created the problem just can't work, that the Western world needs to be rethinking the way it approaches what it is to be a human being on this planet and what relationships are important. Today we're speaking with Dr. Christine Winter, a senior lecturer in environmental, climate change, multi-species and indigenous politics. Her research focuses on the ways in which academic political theory, and particularly theories of justice, continue to perpetuate injustice for some people, and more specifically for Maori and the environment. And her most recent research centers on ensuring the emerging field of a political theory of multi-species justice should have decolonial foundations. We begin here as Dr. Winter addresses the need to go deeper beneath the more high-level changes within settler politics that many tend to focus on, such as economic policy, fighting corruption, confronting the corporate monopolization of power, and so on, to instead, and crucially, recognize that the problem doesn't begin with our various institutions of power and that it's necessary to challenge their underlying philosophies. What became very obvious to me as I was looking at intergenerational justice and intergenerational environmental justice was this this disconnect between, you know, philosophers or um, political theorists 
clearly wanting to come up with a strategy or come up with a set of rules or come up with a framework, an ethical framework, a political framework to guide policymakers, to guide politicians, to guide our communities. And not being able to because the underlying ontology of the philosophy left them nowhere to go. So that made me think, well, what is this? What are the things? And, and there are a bunch of them. One of them is, is materialism. One of them is dividing space into property. So whether it's land or waters or air or whatever, turning the material world into property, turning place, as I phrase it, into spaces, just into measured spaces with which one has no emotional or spiritual or cultural connection. There's individualism, which is probably one of the greatest culprits, combined with anthropocentrism, combined with this, this dualism, that the idea that human and the non-human realm are separate. And then there's the issue of time and the idea that time is progressive, that the past exists but it's past. The present is all important and we can discount the future. We can discount the future because we're going to, we're going to be advancing and people in the future will be able to pay their way out of or invent their way out of whatever sort of problems we leave behind. And those frameworks are very, very different to the way that, for instance, Maori philosophy is framed. And there we have, we have concepts such as you are related to a place. So land, waters, seas are not tradable. They are relational. Individualism isn't the focus. It's the collective and the good of the collective that's important. They are less initially, well, sort of pre, pre-colonialism were less, less materialistic societies more interested in sufficiency and more interested in improving the world for future generations rather than taking from it now and hoping that future generations will be able to invent their way out of problems. Also cosmological or holistic. So the the non-human realm and the human realm are completely understood to be intertwined. There isn't a clear separation between the two. And then finally, the idea of time, where the past and the present and future are conceived of existing simultaneously. And so that one of your key concerns is whether or not you're going to be a good ancestor, whether you are going to, in fact, have facilitated the good life for future generations. So, yeah, I think that's where I've, I've got to. And I feel quite strongly now that to try and resolve the sorts of environmental problems that we're facing from from within the same ontological and epistemological frameworks that have created the problem just can't work, that the Western world needs to be rethinking the way it approaches what it is to be a human being on this planet and what relationships are important and how it is that the world must engage with the non-human realm to protect both the non-human and human and to give a, live a good life, a good life in both an ethical and a, and a physical way. Mm. 
Well, as you said, this is a big question, and we could certainly spend hours just talking about each of the themes that you touched on here. <laughs> and the few things that you mentioned, private property, materialism, individualism, and so forth, so often a lot of people accept them as just how things work, and so mm. much of it is embedded within settler politics. So for a lot of people, it's all that they ever know. And mm. therefore, I think naming these things is important because it helps us to go from being fully immersed in it all and accepting them as just how things work to recognizing that there are other ways of being and relating to the world. And in addition to intergenerational justice, part of your research focus and central to the Maori philosophy is also this idea of multi-species justice. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could elaborate more on what this means in your philosophy and culture and how it blurs our conceptions of boundaries, borders, and individual selfhood that may be the underlying worldview of Western politics and law. <laughs> That's another very deep question. Thank you. And it's it's another one that's complex and could take us a day or two to discuss. But very briefly, it's, it's a matter of understanding that there is no separation between human and non-human, that human beings are part of the non-human realm and dependent on it and that we are all related. Now, the way that the philosophy explains that, the way that philosophy explains that or Maori philosophy explains that is to identify that all, all things on earth have, have a spiritual quality, have a potential to be or a sort of a spark of life as it were, the word that is used is Maori, and that all things in their own ways are reaching out to connect with everything else, with the things around them. And one of our roles as, as humans, as the youngest relatives on earth, being the last to come into existence, as it were, one of our roles is to ensure that we respect the Maori, that we that we respect the mana, the the the, the the respect worthiness of everything and that you think very carefully about how you engage with the non-human realm. So one example would be if you if you take what would seem to be an inanimate thing, if you look at a mountain or a, or a hillside, you understand that its, its purpose is to be a mountain or it is to be a hillside. And what's important then is that any use you make of that, any paths you may establish on it, any building you may place on that hill or that mountain should enhance the being of the hill or the mountain rather than detract from it. So that would make you then think twice about cutting, cutting a steep road up that hill or mountain when fully in the knowledge that it's very likely that that will cause slips, that it will scar the mountain or the hillside, that it will make it less visually pleasant, but also that it will stop it, it stop it in some way being itself, having its own its own purpose and and respecting that purpose and treating it with the esteem that we believe it deserves. 
Mm. Well, to take this another step further, another part of the worldview embedded within dominant Western thought is the separation of nature and culture (laughs) as different Mm. things. And Mm. the need to problematize this dichotomy is now pretty familiar to me because I've been thinking through it with various indigenous and decolonial scholars and leaders. But I was reminded of how deeply rooted this binary is in Western thought when I briefly touched on this idea while speaking with an environmental journalist who had to stop me and ask what I meant by that. So to someone who has never thought through what it means to blur this boundary and see nature as culture and vice versa, how would you explain this philosophy to them and why this deeper worldview shift might be foundational to our abilities to heal our planet and create politics rooted in multi-species and intergenerational justice? Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to flick into Western science now. Mm. I'm going to flick into forensic science. And I'm going to note that should you be unfortunate enough to die prematurely and die unknown, doesn't even need to be premature, but to die unknown, one way that a forensic scientist can sort out who you are is to look at and examine and, I guess, perform chemical tests on your bone. And your bones will tell them with some accuracy where you were born and raised because of the chemical composition in your bones. Now, your bones have that chemical composition because, of course, you've eaten food from that place. And I guess the science is becoming less accurate as we become more mobile and as our food comes from places other than our own gardens or our own immediate environs. But it does indicate that we are only human because we are able to take food from the environment, because we breathe air, air that has been that has been processed through trees that moves around the earth, that the boundaries between me and air, for instance, you and air, are very, very blurred. You know, at what moment is that air something external? And then at what moment is it internal? At what moment is it inanimate? And at what moment does it animate you and me? And if we think about those things, we begin to realize, I think, that there is no human and out there. We are in the world. We are of the world. We are of the environment and we cannot exist outside of the environment. So to to present ourselves as something other, something separate from, is the most extraordinary hubris, I think. Mm. And on that note, I've been actually curious to reframe this common saying of life on earth or humans on earth to life as earth or humans as earth because it kind of shifts the perspective from seeing humans as being separate from earth to seeing us as a part of the greater whole. So I feel like there are a lot of things embedded in language as well that are sort of reflective of these deeper worldviews that are often accepted as 
the ways that we should relate to the world that we could, yeah. you know, really think about and pick apart. Yeah, I really, I really like that. I think that's really, it's a really great thing to do. Yeah. And one of the obvious problems with language is how do we refer to that which is not human? And we do it, we tend to do it as, as in opposition, so human and non-human. And, and it's very, very difficult within English anyway, to, to find a way of expressing that which is not human without including the word human in some way. Mm, that's so true as well. You mentioned time earlier, which I want to mm. circle back to. As we think about the relationship that different corporations and political institutions have with time, whether it's short or long-term goals or in terms of service in office, I wonder if how these structures and institutions that have been set up have sort of become a barrier to intergenerational justice and decision-making. And it's hard to even imagine what politics and governance could look like without these arbitrary time limits or this orientation towards immediate and short-term gains. But I also wonder how you might envision political frameworks that have a different relationship with time that can guide us towards intergenerational thinking and justice. Mm, that's a really interesting question. There are examples of corporations that have 100-year and 200-year plans. So one of those is SoftBank in Japan. And if you, in making a 200-year plan, you know that you are not actually able to foresee exactly what the, the, the shape and the form of the business is going to be in 200 years' time. But you're also very clear that you want that business to exist for that length of time. And if you want that business to exist for that length of time, then you're going to want to ensure that the environment in the very, very large sense of environment, so in, I mean environment in terms of society, economics, government, and physical environment, remains conducive to your business thriving. So I think the nature of the decisions that you make will be very, very different if in, in the decision-making process, you know, in the boardroom and in the executive suite, if you are asking the question, if, if we do this, how will that, that jeopardise the chances of this business still being existent, existing in 200 years' time? How will that enhance our our future. Now here in Aotearoa, I know of one iwi which has a thousand-year plan. So it's making decisions now with the intention of ensuring that in a thousand years their iwi remains strong, that their whenua, that their land, that their, that their river, their awa remains healthy and vibrant and reproductive. There are other large iwi corporations who own forests and they too have 200-year plans and, and longer. And, and, and I think in doing that, if you move away from quarterly objectives or annual reports, and if governments have, a, have some sort of requirement to think beyond their own term, and I'm not quite sure how we structure that, but I think it, it, a government should be responsible for thinking 10, 20, 100 years into the future. 
then the decision to make are quite, quite different to the ones that are just short-term and they involve caring for the environment. They involve caring for the way society is structured to caring for people far more than the current system. And I wouldn't doubt that the ways that the dominant Western culture conceptualizes the self in a very atomistic and individualistic way also relates to and contributes to perpetuating short-term thinking because people want to build whatever it is that they want to work towards right now for themselves. So if people were to conceptualize selfhood in a much more expansive way, intergenerationally and in a multi-species ecological and community way as well, I think that would also shift the ways that we relate to time and the goals that we work towards. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I agree. And, and it, it comes back again to this, this business of, of ancestor. You know, so are you respecting what your ancestors have done before you? And how will your how will future generations regard you as an ancestor? So if you see yourself as part of a community that expands through all time, that leads to a quite different engagement, both with the natural realm and with other people, with society in general. The atomistic, individualistic, capitalist, utility, maximizing person that we're led to believe is what people are, I think is a very narrow view of human potential. And I think it's a very poor description of who or what we can be. It's, it's, it's a, I don't know, it's kind of, it leads to a shriveled up form of human being, I think. Mm. And w- one of the things that st- struck me at the beginning of COVID, I was reading an article by a, by a journalist who was raging against the lockdowns in Australia, saying, well, you know, his father was, I can't remember what it was, but early 70s. And I'm sure he'd be willing to die so that I could have my freedoms, said this young journalist. After all, he's taken all he needs to from this world. And that struck me as as being a very odd way of looking at being human, it seems to me that the measure of our life is how much we have given, not how much we have taken. And your research in large part focuses on the ways in which justice theory in the settler states broadly and specifically for Māori of Aotearoa, New Zealand, perpetuates practices that are unjust of domination, oppression, and violence. And this can feel a little abstract, so I wonder if you could provide some examples as to how the idea or visions of justice within settler states with their underlying philosophies and worldviews still might perpetuate injustice. And also whether this is an invitation for people to think beyond rights-based frameworks of justice and equality within our current political systems. Mm, Yes, it is. And that really leads us leads us back to the beginning when I was talking about the difference between the Western ontology and and Maori ontology. If you've got something like, if we think of, you know, the human rights framework for justice, it's entirely anthropocentric. It's about humans only. But when you live in a culture that 
is equally as concerned with the non-human realm, then that framework for justice is not going to work. When you have a theory of justice which is focused entirely on the individual human, then that does not work for peoples who are collective, for whom the understanding of the good life stems from the strength of the community, that the individual can only be strong if the community is strong, that in fact the individual can only be autonomous in an environment where the community is strong. So you know these ideas of time also, uh, you know the, the Western conception of time that completely dismisses any alternative conceptions of time, and the the the, the whole property regime where you've got a legal system that understands land and waters and seas, the ANR, if, if we think about emissions trading schemes, in fact, all they're doing is privatising the atmosphere. If you contrast that with peoples for whom, one, it, it is inconceivable that those things can be owned, but then secondly, who have very deep relationships with those places, to parcel it up and sell it, to to remove it from move those lands from the commons, to not have a legal structure within your society that allows for a relational understanding of people and land is, I think, to perpetuate an injustice. I think it, it it's a mode of domination. It's an it's a mode of ongoing colonial violence, actually. So. It seems like inclusivity politics just doesn't go nearly far enough and deep enough in order to realize the transformations that we need for collective healing. And a few years ago, I remember it was all over the news when the Whanganui River, after over 100 years of activism from the Maori people, became recognized as having human rights. So given what we just discussed on the rights-based framework, how have you thought through this type of historic recognition within settler politics? And what might you still see as the limitations of just replicating this model of land protection everywhere and expanding who is recognized as having human rights? Mm. Right. So we've got another two days to sit and talk here now, I think. (laughs) But look, I think it's very exciting. It is an example of a process in which a capitalist framework, so the framework of creating a a legal identity or a legal person, has been repurposed to recognise an iwis or the people of the Whanganui's understanding of their relationship with the river, with the awa, with the whanganui. It's really, really an exciting move. And it really is full of potential within this country. It is part of a reparations process for the for the government's contravention of the founding treaty of the nation. I'm not sure how it can work in other 
countries. So we've seen in the United States, there was an attempt to grant Lake Erie personhood status by a local municipality, and that was then overturned by the state government. So the same thing happened in India. One of the states gave legal personhood to rivers, to the air, to glaciers, in an attempt to protect them from uh, from pollution. But again, the state government overturned that legislation. So I think the situation in New Zealand was was not pretty, but completely unique because it was this confluence of treaty reparations and then the goodwill to find a way to work with two quite different ontologies and epistemologies, two quite different legal systems, and come up with a solution that would work for both peoples. The first case actually in Aotearoa was was for uh, Te Urawera, which is a large mountainous area and extensive. It had been a national park and it gained personhood in uh, 2014. Hwanganui followed and next will be Taranaki Monga. There's an agreement to do that. Now, each of these areas is already what would be called in Western parlance a wilderness how it would how something could work similarly for say an area that was intensively farmed i don't know that there would be the will or the ability to do that however it is a very significant move and it is a first move towards forming legal precedent that recognizes the two different legal systems two different cultural philosophical and knowledge systems uh, in one state. So I think it's very, very exciting. Whether it can be properly repurposed properly, in inverted commas, you can take that properly out if you like, whether it can be effectively repurposed in other places around the world will depend entirely on, I guess, on on the cultural backgrounds to the people who are doing doing the work and the political systems in which they are working. Mm. Yeah, every place certainly has unique challenges and histories to contend with. Mm. And what I've come to learn is that for many indigenous communities whose everything is tethered to the land and to place, ecology, culture, spirituality, economy, cosmologies, knowledge, and kinship systems are all intricately connected and parts of the same whole that shape one's existence. And it makes sense to me because while there is so much diversity there, it is all place-based as a part of the complexity that has developed over hundreds or thousands of years or longer to help communities to live and thrive as a part of their unique biocultural landscapes. And Mm -hmm. the subtle thread I want to pull through is that, to me, that's where the diversity for resilience comes from. And I see that diversity as necessarily being context and place dependent. Though I think it's really challenging now that many places have been through historic processes of colonization or imperialism that have uprooted a lot of people, severed many from their place-based cultures and histories, and homogenized diverse cultures and led to a sort of cultural hegemony, so that the forms of diversity that exist are no longer as grounded and rooted in the same ways. And Again, it's challenging now, especially in an age where people really value the ability to think and feel and believe freely as individuals to then say, 
hmm, maybe the ways that particular groups of people think and their ways of seeing and relating to the world is unhealthy and life compromising. And for example, that people cannot just take indigenous practices of land care without also considering the deeper philosophies of life that those diverse practices emerge from. So mm. there's a lot of layers here, but I'd be curious to hear your views on how we can both honor the knowing that diversity lends itself to resilience, including diversity in thought, and have this delicate conversation about how some philosophies and worldviews may actually be key drivers of our collective ailment. <laughs> okay. So I think that the current moment, th th this moment of really roiling unnatural disasters that we're seeing across the world. So I take the fourth flood event in New South Wales, Australia in the last 18 months. You take the fires and the redwood trees, the sequoia trees in California. You have places in Europe on fire. You have fire in Serbia. We've got the Antarctic ice sheets melting. These are not natural hazards. They're not natural events. You know, we refer to them as natural hazards or natural catastrophes, but they are unnatural. And it is, it is a moment, I think, for people to stop and think, okay, so why has this occurred? What is it that has led to this? And we know, we know the chemistry, we know the physics, we understand all of that. But it's time really to re-examine for the West, particularly the, the hegemonic cultures, to re-examine the foundations of their culture, the foundations of their politics, the foundations even of science and knowledge. That doesn't mean you can just pick and choose bits and pieces from other cultures because that's not going to work. That's not something of your own. But it is very important that the West re-examines these foundations because, as I've said earlier in the conversation, I'm, I'm re and I think you said it too, I am absolutely convinced that it is impossible to, to resolve the environmental crises from the same worldview as has created them. And one example of that is that, you know, we, we, we turn to, to legal mechanisms to monitor or to create frameworks around what can and cannot be done. But all of those have wriggle room. All of those still allow for certain industrial practices, allow for pollution up to a certain level allow for extraction up to a certain level. None of them actually challenges the worldview that says any of that is okay. It just says, yes, it's okay, but you, we've got to limit how much you do. So I'm not quite sure if that answers your question or not, but I, I do think it's not a question of saying, oh, well, these other cultures seem to have got this solved or I like what these people do over there, so we'll just take a little bit of that and we'll take a little bit of that. It needs to be a cultural shift within a given culture and that, it, that culture is really, the, the, as you described it, the hegemonic Western culture. Yeah, there's certainly no simple and straightforward answer or a clear path forward. But I do really appreciate thinking through these big questions with you. 
And something that I know you've been sitting with is what the value of multi-species flourishing would mean for how you relate to and care for native species, introduced species, and even invasive species, who in most cases are present where they are through no fault of their own. So as we're closing off our main discussion here, what are some of those nuances and questions you've been curious to lean deeper into? And what words of guidance do you have for our listeners here? The idea of multi-species justice as a political theory is, I think, an opportunity to start really challenging these underlying ontological foundations of political theory. As we start, as academics, as we start thinking about what would a political theory of multi-species justice look like, Within the Western framework of justice, I think then we also have an opportunity to reassess the way we engage with people as well. So it it requires a quite significant shift in the way that Western philosophy is conceptualized to include the non-human realm. Up until now, justice is just a matter of the interactions between human beings. And if you bring the non-human realm into the spheres of justice, it makes theorists reconsider what is important and, and how justice is conceived. And by bringing the non-human realm in, I think it does two things. I think it makes us more aware of our dependency on a healthy environment. I think it makes us more, it requires a deeper form of compassion or empathy. And my hope would be that that would then extend to other people as well as to the non-human realm. I think what it may also do is begin to eradicate the language that others, other people, you know, people who are not from your area or who look different or who are differently abled or whatever, and othering other creatures and seeing us all as part of a of a united whole where everything needs to be considered and treated well. So my hope is that that the result of that is that there will be greater justice between people as well as justice between people in the non-human realm. The the issue of invasive pests is a really really difficult one. And it's one that I have honestly not resolved for myself. As as a Maori person, one of my responsibilities is to care for my environment, to care for the native species in my country. And native species are just uh, invasive species are destroying those native species. However, as you so rightly point out. Those animals are there for not because they've asked to be brought here, not because they came here on their own, but they were they were brought here by the colonists. They are a function of colonial action. They are, in fact, as much a, vil- a victim of colonisation as Indigenous peoples around the world are. 
How it's dealt with, I, I do not, I honestly have no resolution. I feel um, really torn about it. That's my honest response. You said you think that you would rather be on your own Than have to wait and watch another one you love go You're getting used to moving through your days all alone Why mess it up now? You're going tired of watching your own heart shatter and decisions beaten and battered And nothing feels real and nothing seems to matter In the eye of the storm goes all the doors What has been an impactful book that you've read or publication you follow? I think I can give you two answers here. There, well, there are a number of number of things that have impacted me, but I think two books that come to mind immediately, and one is Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, which is just an absolutely beautiful book, and I would advise everybody on earth to read it. Secondly, I I read and I listen to the uh, Emergence magazine and the Emergence magazine podcast which I think give me a, a, a daily or a weekly dose of, of insights into how to be a thoughtful and an engaged and an ethical human being in, in a multi-species world. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? <laughs> I don't have a motto, um, and I don't, and I don't, I don't have any mantra. I think the the way I stay grounded is I walk a lot, and I look constantly for beauty. I see, I see beauty in the clouds and in in the flowers and the trees. Uh, there is a um, a tui, a New, native New Zealand bird that that calls outside my office window all day, every day. And as I walk through cold, sleety rain and wind just yesterday, it was still in its tree and it was still singing as gaily and as happily as it does every other day of the year. And I was, I was actually incredibly inspired by its resilience. Mm. Well, on that note, what is your biggest source of inspiration right now? <laughs> I think family and young people. I am just so impressed with the students that I engage with in class and around the universities. And as I watch them leading on climate change, they inspire me daily. I am so impressed with the young people that are coming through. They're amazing young people, amazing people. Mm. Well, Christine, it's been an incredible honor to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for this deeply enriching and nourishing discussion. For now, as we wrap up all the wisdom you've already shared with us and the deeper inquiries that you've inspired us to think about, what parting words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? It's important to just keep on engaging, to keep thinking, to keep thinking deeply, to try and 
to navigate new routes, not to accept the status quo and to know that change is possible. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Eye of the Storm by Ali Deneen. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.